Hello? Good? Volume? Yeah? Good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? Yes? Excited? Well, before I even say anything, I just want to give my own personal shout-out to Devoted. I had the honor and privilege of serving this weekend. And uh, so there was this moment where the floor began to feel like you were standing on a trampoline. And all I know, ladies, is that Jesus can only move concrete that way. So just want to give a shout-out. It was powerful. So Catalyst has always been our time for community and celebration. And this morning, we have the honor and privilege from hearing our brother, from our brother George. So I'm going to interview him. So George, do you want to start off by just sharing who you are? And I heard that you got this pretty cool uh, ministry opportunity coming up this weekend. So if you want to share about that. Uh, yeah, so I'm George, as Nishu so eloquently said. He, he actually said he was going to call me Mr. Woods at first. Mr. And, Woods. And I said it wouldn't be appropriate if I knocked him off the stage. So um, anyway, so it, it really all began back in August of last year, where after 10 years of doing uh, ministry with the Timothy Initiative and um, really being in deeply entrenched in um, life on life, ministry with uh, addiction and um, just watching the the different challenges that we had to to watch and just going through everything we had to go through over 10 solid years I had found myself at a place where I felt like it was it was time for a change and as most people that have done something for a long time they don't necessarily know what that next phase of their life looks like and I met with Lucas, and he prophetically said something to me at that time where he, he knows me, knows my heart, knew my passion, and he, he felt like that it would be um, a great thing if somehow I could bring the me message of uh, what I discovered in the Timothy Initiative with addiction to the city. And that's a great like thing to prosper to, but... A next to impossible thing when it comes to like how do you actually do that and do I actually have anything to add to the conversation that isn't already out there when it comes to addiction and I took about a, a six-week sabbatical and during that time I recognized that I definitely have something to say on the topic of addiction I've definitely discovered something about uh, addiction that is a secret that is the the basis of what true recovery looks like and I needed to share that with whether it was the city or the world or with one person. It doesn't matter. I needed to share that. But I was left with the difficult task of figuring out how to do that. And it was really through um, a really bizarre opportunity where there, I found out at the last minute that there was a, um, a conference that needed a panel to discuss opiate addiction. And they needed people to be on the panel, and it, and it involved the faith leaders community. And I was taken aback because I wasn't even actually asked to the conference. So I was like, <laughs> man, this is not a good start to me delivering this message to the city. Yeah. But um, I went in that day and was on the panel and um, really just kind of shared my heart with everyone that was there and what I'd found in my 10 years with the Timothy Initiative. And... Um, 
lo and behold, you know, some people really it resonated with them, and they asked me to start participating in the Hillsborough County Faith Leaders Task Force Initiative slash movement slash doctors uh, slash USF. How am I doing, Dr. Bond? Did I get everything? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Bond, who's heading the whole thing up, actually came out here today to see me speak. But it's got a really long name, but basically it's... Um, a group of faith leaders that team up with a group of doctors and professors from USF and people from Humana, the insurance agency, and um, try to figure out this thing called opiate addiction and how to better communicate recovery and uh, abstinence and all of those things about opiates, but to do it in a way that we all work together. So it's not just the faith leaders, it's not just the doctors, but it's actually everyone coming together and trying to come up with um, a common language that we all use and a common goal that we're all trying to achieve. And in that, um, after that first panel, I was approached by an imam from the local mosque. And he, he really liked my story and he said he wanted to put together something for the Muslim community and the refugee community that he was part of. And he would like me to, you know, basically help him do that and to speak and to do um, the organ, you know, help with the organization of the event and everything. And I didn't actually understand the full weight of everything. Um, I think because we live in such a Christian culture that we forget that there's other cultures even out there. And especially when we're here in America. And I especially realize that um, being in a Christian culture, you, we always think about going into a persecuted country um, somewhere like Iraq or, or somewhere, you know, other than here that we would risk being persecuted. And I, it suddenly hit me one day that um, the Muslim community is very much persecuted here in America. Mm, that's good. And... You know, they, yeah. they have to deal with, um, you know, the top official in the country constantly, you know, trying to kick them out and constantly, um, con you know, calling them whatever he calls them. And it's just a really hostile environment. And for um, an imam, which is like a pastor in Christianity, um, to want to partner with me, I felt that was like a real honor and a, a real privilege. Um, in fact, about uh, a month ago, we were on another panel at a, a big addiction seminar, and he was on the panel, and Dr. Bond, and myself, and another pastor. We were on the, all on the panel, and someone had asked him the, from the audience what the most positive thing of this Faith Leaders Alliance was to him. And man, if it didn't like, really floor me, but he said that he'd, try, he'd found true friends, and he didn't expect it. He found people he could trust in wow. those of us that are part of the Faith Leaders um, Alliance that yeah. he didn't expect to be part of that. Mm. And he explained how being a Muslim in America, um, you don't necessarily trust a lot of Christians and you don't mm. necessarily trust a lot of Americans. And I felt the privilege of that to have this man call me his friend and to want to um, welcome me into his home, into his mosque and to, to trust me on a deeper level and um, I realized that you know it wasn't necessarily about trying to convert him or or 
preach to him. It was about what Jesus says in, it's really by your love that they're going to know me at all. And um, we began putting together this event. And next weekend, we are having a opiate, um, a conference on opiate addiction and opiates in general. And it's for the Muslim community and the refugee community. And one thing that's pretty cool about it is they're actually going to have headsets that do automatic translation to the different refugee communities that do real-time translations. And I just was like, wow, this is like real. This is happening. And um, the really interesting thing is it's here yeah. in our hub. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So that really is something to clap about because the truth is, it didn't hit me because I've been part of the underground for so long, and we have such a, an amazing, phenomenal community that talks about difficult issues like race and, and so many different difficult topics that we are just so used to it that it didn't even hit me that, no, I don't think that the majority of Christian churches in America would welcome um, the Muslims in to have an event where, yes, the event is going to be started off by praying from the Quran. Um, we have to stop the event halfway through so that they can um, do their midday prayer. Um, the other day when he's like, can we pray in there? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you can pray. We, all, uh, we do pray. And he's like, uh, we need a flat surface. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily know. So on Tuesday, we have to do a walkthrough to figure out if we can figure out where 150 Muslims can pray in yeah. here. Um, can I... Yeah. Can I actually elaborate on something? So yeah. in our coffee time, mm -hmm. um, there's been a couple of times where you mentioned um, that racial reconciliation portion, and you expressed some of the things that you were learning from them. Actually, you're expressing how it was by being in community with them, it was making you better. Um, yeah. Can you ex yeah. talk about share with yeah, them? Absolutely. Um, through being part of the underground and learning about um, this thing that a couple years ago I probably didn't think existed called white culture, and um, especially as a white male where, you know, we definitely don't notice that all of the culture around us is a white culture. Um, and, and through learning what that actually looks like and not being an expert by any means, but definitely being able to notice it more than I had, you know, years ago. Uh, to realize that when we invited the imam to be part of the faith leaders coalition, what we were actually doing was inviting him to a Christian forum that they would, could be allowed to be a Muslim in. And just by being so absorbed in Christian culture that everything is Christian. So even in the fact that they're there, um, is a true testament to like the sensitivity that I noticed that like, okay, wow, we're talking to him in a way that's not appropriate to his culture, um, you know, as I've learned about it. And, and knowing now what I know as being a white person in a white culture and speaking to people of other races and, and, and recognizing like, okay, that's how a white person would say, what, what, how do they receive that? And then recognizing how people will talk to him and like often going up to him afterwards and apologizing for, yeah, I know that's not how you would speak to each other. And just being able to be sensitive to that has really taught me so much. And 
I've just learned a lot about how his faith is so strong for him personally. He doesn't flinch when people offend him. He doesn't flinch when people say things about his faith or whatever. He's just always so even keeled in what he believes and he's so solid in what he he trusts in as in his faith and it's really makes me wonder like why most people probably in like Christians wouldn't allow the Muslims in because they were afraid like what you're afraid he's accidentally going to convert you Uh. well what's that say about your own faith then Uh. and and so you know we need to be strong enough in our identity and who we are in Jesus and and yet to be able to treat people like the individual that they should be allowed to be treated as that's good so um I guess as we're kind of wrapping the interview up. What are what are some of your prayer needs that we can join you in? Well, um, I think for one, it's I'm really hoping to. What I've been hoping is to see, um, you know, Jesus move in a way that um, they just see love and, and to really recognize what that that love is. Yeah. But the biggest prayer need is, I should really explain that like part of why I wanted to be part of this it had nothing to do with trying to reach the Muslim community nothing my my heart and soul is for defeating addiction and opiate addiction in particular both my sister and my brother died of drug overdoses to opiates in the same year 10 years ago and so I have a, a real passion for helping um, people to understand opiate addiction, to understand addiction as a whole and what it takes to recover from that and what it takes to live a life of uh, staying recovered from that. And so I am the main speaker ending out the day, which is such a privilege to be able to speak as the final closing speaker. I'm giving the call to action at the end of this event. And I realize that so much of how I communicate about addiction and about recovery is based on Jesus. Um, And so I've somehow got to give the final talk and do so in a way that doesn't deny or belittle my faith, but encourages them in their faith because the event is about opiate addiction. It's about defeating that common enemy not about trying to convert each other to each other's faiths. And so my prayer, my, the prayers I need is for me to be able to communicate that message at the end of this event in a yes. way that sends this yes. community of refugees and Muslims home in a way that they are better equipped to, you know, defeat addiction and to defeat opiate addiction in particular. Man, that's so awesome. So I was wondering as a community if we can just, if y'all would like to extend your hands out, we're going to join and partake in prayer with George. Cool. Um, Jesus, if I'm honest with my prayer, God, I'm just, I guess I mourn, God, that something like this even has to exist, God. Um, That there has to be a forum for addiction, God. But Jesus, there are those like George who carry life and light, God. And then there, there are those who, who carry a beautiful story about redemption and wholeness, God. And George will be that this weekend, God, in that forum. He will be 
a representation of reckless love, God. And so I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that the same spirit that dwells in us is the same spirit that, um, that dwells in them, God. That their hearts can be moved, God, and their minds can be moved because it was all completed 2,000 years ago, God. And that truth is so evident, God, in that moment, God, that there is freedom from addiction because there is one um, who advocates for us, God, who will always advocate for us, God. And so I ask for activation um, for our brother George as a community, God. We lift him up, God. Um, we are at odd at what you are doing in his life, God, and what you are doing um, with him in this community, Jesus. Um, and God, this really is worship because whenever we hear each other's testimony and the ways that you are using us, God, we have no, we have no option but to worship you, God, because that, that's, that's the way you work. You, you work by using us, Jesus. And so we just praise you. And Jesus, um, yeah, I, I'm just kind of feeling my spirit that um, for those brothers and sisters in that room that those labels are removed, God, that they're not looked at as Muslims, God, but they are looked at beautiful and precious gifts, God, that even me, God, once, once I was a label, God, once I was lost, um, but now you use me to advocate for love, peace, hope, um, joy, um, and all these beautiful uh, characters that reside um, that reside and came from your death, God. And so, um, yeah, the anointing is not a counterfeit. It is real. It teaches us. And, um, yeah, we just love George. Amen. Thanks, man. What up? Thanks, guys. You're fine. Um, the I think it's important for us. We we have um, you know two two hundred ex creative expressions of the church all over the city, and that actually means two hundred or more actually uh, leaders of those creative expressions of the church all over the city. And God is doing uh, amazing things among us. Um, but oftentimes we don't have opportunities, or when we do have opportunities, we don't often do it where we like share what, what God is up to amongst us. And so we are like on the lookout. We're, we're listening ears trying to listen for, um, I think, faith-building stories that we, could, that we could highlight here. And the thing I love about what's happening this weekend and, and is, is just this, this, I don't know, seeing this, uh, um, like so many of you, I think, I think there are people who have lived lives and uh, um, followed Jesus in such a way that they've inherited gems, like jewels, in their own story, wisdom in their own story, that's actually worth sharing with the world. But if you, too early in your ministry life or leadership, if you just go trying to scratch and claw and build your own platform and influence, a lot of times it won't work. But God actually emerges you in, in time, in good time. And so this idea that like, that, you know, maybe George was interested in citywide leadership or being a gift to the city in the space of addiction ministry, but did, wasn't quite sure how to do that. And then suddenly just stumbled into a few spaces where suddenly he's just being invited to be a servant and share some of his story that he's had over time. I, and I think even having access to a lot of people that I, we don't have, there's not a lot of people in this room that have access to, honestly. 
to love, to serve, to listen to, to speak with, to build relationship with. Um, so I think I think it's amazing. We do have before we d- dive in the pa- in the passage, we do have uh, it looks like four I think four very distinguished guests among us that I just want to highlight. It's these oscillating fans. Um, so we're really grateful for them. <laughs> There's. A, I guess it's worth a clap. It's worth a clap. We do want them to feel honored this morning. Um, so uh, we are. We are. Uh, you will be. You. I'm sure you will be pleased to know that we are um, on the on the cusp of a fix of this air conditioning. We're just waiting on a part. That's all. So maybe next week it'll be good. But but this is all good for us. It's very good for us. So um, we are thankful for the fans. Um, you can. You can have a personal conversation with them at the end if you'd like, um, but we're going to jump into Acts 18, 1 through 18 this morning, um, and I do feel, I, I, I jokingly put on Twitter yesterday that I was very jealous I didn't go to Devoted. I, I, um, I was trying to track with Devoted all weekend and just like trying to see every Instagram, and every Insta story, every tweet. I was just trying to experience it from afar in my living room. Um, in my own jeal- you know, rolling around in my own jealousy. Um, but I do, I think this morning I do feel like a sense of gratitude and wonder at the at the plurality of voices that this stage platforms. And I I think I I actually feel very honored and maybe actually a little bit like, um. I don't know. After so much that happened this weekend, like a little bit unworthy to be in the stage after. You know, so many, so many amazing leaders in our community have have uh, delivered from this stage, um, and I think I think it it emerges in me gratitude that God has graced us with so many amazing leaders who are contributing to the spiritual formation of our whole community, um, and what that plurality of leaders means to our witness to the watching world, uh, and so. I just wanted to say I'm really jealous, but I tried to turn that jealousy into gratitude or something spiritual, you know, at the end of Saturday. So uh, we and we are going to be introduced this morning to a a a woman leader in the New Testament who's going to be who has much more of a story after this text. um, But we are introduced to her this morning for the first time. We're going to be in Acts 18, 1 through 18. You've got it on the back of your sheet. Um, or you can go find it on a screen. I'd love to give you, like we usually do, an opportunity to read it um, and wrestle with it a little bit on your own uh, before hearing about it from someone else. Uh, It's part of our ethic as a community, um, our love for the Bible. And so I'd love for you to be able to read it, uh, to discern it, to to discover it on your own terms, um, and then maybe have some time to dialogue about it with the people next to you, two or three people next to you. So, God, we need your spirit to reveal to us the truth. When we study your word apart from your spirit, we discover nothing but falsity. And so God, reveal to us by your spirit the truth of this text uh, that is inspired by you and meant to say something to us right now. And so God, we submit to your will in this moment. It's in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take some time to read that.
does it. Okay, go ahead and um, uh, uh, turn to a few people next to you just to talk out the passage a little bit. But before you do that, you only have 1 through 12, yeah? My good friend William notified me of, of such a matter that we face right now. Um, I am covering 1 through 18, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to read the rest. Can you listen to me just for a second? I mean, some of you may maybe already troubleshooted this, went and found your phone. That's fine. But I'll go ahead and read it, 12 through 18. So this is 11. Um, so Paul, this is the end of what you, well, this is toward the end of what you have. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And this is the end of what you have. While Galia was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of uh, Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Is that the end of what you have? What a cliffhanger. What a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Let me tell you. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just, was, just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, the crowd, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own laws, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. Go ahead and turn with three or four people and uh, uh, two, three people and, and talk out your observations from the passage. And, if, and maybe elect one person to go find 12 through 18 for the group, you know, uh, uh, to represent it. Go ahead.
Okay. Finish up your final thoughts with each other. If you, you know, usually we have like a big dialogue. If you'd allow me to jump in, and actually it's a, um, most of what I want to, I'm taking a little bit of a unique angle on this this morning, and most of what I want to talk to is actually in the first 12 verses, so it's good that you only had those. The rest is just distraction. It's okay. It's good. It's good. The media team knew my sermon before I did and gave you what you need, exactly what you need, 12 verses. This is what I want to say. I'm going to do a little bit of a um, – I'm just taking a – I don't think it's the intent of the story to do this, but I just think it's interesting. Um, what I want to talk about this morning is the, the, the main point I want to get across is this quote from a guy named Curtis Sargent. The devil will do the minimal amount of work to keep you silent. The devil will do the minimal amount of work to keep you silent. And the story actually, um, uh, there's a lot of ways that you could take and receive and interpret a, a core inspired truth and apply it to your life from the story. But I just think it's interesting that in the story, Paul faces a series of, press, of pressures which are proven threats to ministry sustainability. It proven threats to taking leaders out of ministry. He experiences loneliness, which carries over from the story before this, when he that that which Josh preached on last week, where um, he's in Athens and he's he's alone. He's in that place alone, and he has one of his um, one of his uh, 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 more harmful, worst ministry experiences conveniently while he's alone. He's got nobody to process that with, dialogue about that with, heal up, counsel, anything like that. He finds his way here to Corinth, and, and until he finds his new comrades, his new friends, he is alone. Uh, he experiences loneliness. He expresses bivocation. He experiences bivocational stress, and nobody else in the room experiences that? No? Yeah? He's got some, of the, some bivocational stress trying to make... Tense. It actually, it actually would be more similar to being a, a leather maker, and um, and and being equipped in in uh, uh, dealing with leather. But the majority of what they would do would, would be tense. Um, uh, part of the um, part of the out one of the outcomes of bivocational stress, particularly this one, um, can be the allure of wealth. Uh, because if you understand tent making in the first century and and how how like um, uh, uh, how luxurious that uh, uh, skill can produce of a life, um, trying to understand that Paul had at the tip of his fingers a life a, a very well-to-do life whenever he wanted it, um, and having to deal with that hanging in front of you constantly. Stagnation, uh, uh, having a, a lack of ministry fruit, um, not, not, not seeing very many people respond, um, and not just here, but in the place he just was. Uh, and and um, the acute sense of failure that can be experienced in the life of a leader because of that stagnation, that lack of fruit. Conflict, um, and not just kind of like uh, uh, benign 
uh, uh, non-emotional kind of conflict from outsiders, but I would actually argue that we're seeing a little bit of betrayal, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that. So there's conflict, there's betrayal, there's the threat of physical harm, there's the reality of physical harm, not just the threat, and there's false accusations and, and, and the threat of public reputation. All in one, all in one story. And these are all proven, historically, traditionally proven pressures that actually keep leaders silent, shut down their leadership, uh, um, overwhelming. And I just think it's interesting that right smack in the middle of the text is this word from God, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, keep on speaking. In the midst of experiencing that loneliness, the, the bivocational stress, the allure of wealth, stagnation, conflict, betrayal, physical harm, false accusation, every single one of these actually deserves its own sermon. I could give a full sermon. We could do like a weekend seminar workshop on every single one of these. I could preach this morning about the threat of loneliness to your leadership. That before Priscilla and Aquila show up, Paul was experiencing, experiencing one of the most painful uh, um, moments of ministry uh, that he's seen. And, he's, and he, he's experiencing that while he's alone. He has no one to debrief with, no one for help, no one for counsel. He's in the middle of isolation. And it, and it got me thinking. It reminded me of this, this, uh, this great little 80-some page book. You can read it in an afternoon by Shelley Trebesh, uh, this little book called Isolation. I'm um, talking about, you know, she, she surveys Christian leaders all over the country, and she finds that over 95% of Christian leaders can actually identify a season of intense isolation in leadership. An experience in the context of ministry in which the basic symptoms of regular isolation are felt and experienced. Regular loneliness and isolation. And some of that can be real, visceral isolation. You literally just don't have anybody around. You, you, for, for, for a myriad of reasons, you don't have uh, proximity with people. But some of it can be relational isolation. The thing that you're doing, the space that you're doing ministry in, feels so unique that nobody actually understands it. And that can be a sense of emotion. You might have people, there might be people in this room who are in relationship with 20 other people in this room, and they actually feel isolated. Because they don't have people that they feel like they can talk to about the ministry that they're doing in a way that would acquire understanding and empathy. And real troubleshooting, like real help. Shelley Trebesh in that book, she, she describes experiences of isolation and what they're like. But then she uses that whole, coming, again, not, not her own theorizing, but coming from the stories of real leaders. Uh, she comes up with this theory of how and why God uses the space of isolation in the lives of leaders uh, uh, by stripping them of their false identities, which they've clung to, stripping them of the ways that they've identified themselves and their value with what they do, with being effective. Their worth gets all tied up in that. And in that, that season, that space of stripping them coming closer in wrestling intimacy with God to actually hear from him a deeper word about who they are, a deeper word about their identity, their worth, their value, and to emerge from that space of, of, of stripping and wrestling in intimacy, being able to dream dreams about the future that they were not capable of before. 
she describes that after after uh, having all of these story-based surveys with all these leaders. I was thinking this week about Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when he's the he's the only prophet left. He's a prophet in Israel. He's the only prophet left in all of Israel. And he's on the he's the only one left out of like what what used to be hundreds sometimes and he's the only one left. And he's on the run. He's trying to run away from Ahab and Jezebel who are trying to kill him. And his last confidant, his last like human friendship is his servant that goes around with him everywhere. It says he leaves that, that, that uh, servant in Judah, and he goes running out by himself, total isolation in the forest. He finds his way under a bush, and he prays, God, just kill me. Take my life. Take my life right now. You remember this story? He says, take my life. Kill me. I don't even want to live anymore. Sometimes this is what isolation does. It says, God, I'm good. I don't want to do this anymore. Just end it now. I don't want to do this. And God gives him a nap and a snack. There's a word in there somewhere. God gives him a nap and a snack. And then you know what he does? He carries him into that cave where his presence passes by. For I am with you. For I am with you. You see, I, I could preach about loneliness and leadership, the threat of leadership. I, I could preach about how Jesus meets leaders in their isolation. I could preach about the Jesus who looked at his people and said, now are you going to lead me too? You going to lead me too? You going to walk away? Am I going to be the only one left? But maybe we'll talk about that another day. I could preach this morning about the stress and divided focus of bivocational life. I could talk this morning about how bi bivocational life, the preaching and tent making, ministry and having some way of, of uh, economic revenue to sustain a life, has the potential to be your greatest ministry threat, but also the potential to be your best ministry asset, your greatest ministry asset. It's a threat because bivocational life can divide our focus, it can pull our dreams and imagination and therefore our worship, what we dream and imagine about, towards secular paradigms of success and flourishing. Now I'm not talking about co-vocational, I want to be very clear about this. When I say co-vocational, I mean people who feel deeply called as a priest and the priesthood of all believers to their work. To, to the, what their work is doing and to the people which there is in that work and to the people who have access to that work. And they see their, their ongoing, what the, what the world would call work, as their calling and their ministry field. But when I'm saying bivocational, I'm talking about Paul. I'm talking about tent making in order to make possible all of this, this ministry life going on. That's bivocational. It's a threat because bivocational life can divide our focus and pull our dreams and imagination towards secular paradigms of success and flourishing. That I, we could talk about how imagination and creativity, like desire and dreaming and really trying to think outside of the box, is a limited resource. You can't do it uh, infinitely for anything that you want to in your life. You have a limited amount of mental capacity to do it and a limited amount of time to do it. 
So you actually have to choose what it is that you're going to dream and be creative and be imaginative and innovative about and invite the Spirit of God into that imagination and creativity. And Paul does not waste all of that resource on developing, marketing, planning, and troubleshooting the best tent-making business that the ancient Near East had to offer. He didn't. And if he would have done that, he would have left nothing but aspirational leftovers for his missionary life. Now, if you're co-vocational and you actually think your work is the thing that got you, then yes, apply all that creativity and imagination and prayer and desperation to your work, to your vocation. But if you're bivocational, you have to think about the stewarding of your imagination, your creativity. You see, Bible life is an asset, not a threat. It's an asset because it gives the missionary a context to model the kingdom ethic of work. We need missionaries out there actually modeling a kingdom ethic of hard work. In workplaces, modeling a kingdom ethic of work. God glorifying, Lord submitted work. It gives them a context to model that. It gives them a place to apply worship through professional excellence. To believe, not just, now listen to me. To, this is Paul again. Not just to believe I'm only doing this to provide for myself to go do this other ministry thing. But even in the tent making to think I'm going to be, the, I'm going to operate in this work as a person of the kingdom would. In the way that I treat uh, my, my, my co-laborers, in the way that I treat buyers, in the way that I treat marketplace uh, 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 competitors. I'm going to operate with the ethics of the kingdom in this marketplace. And I will see every tent as an act of worship. I'm going to make the best tents. People are going to lay in my tents and the glory of God will come upon them. This is that like I am going to produce. I, though I, I'm, this is going to be unto the Lord, these tents. And to be able to not just preach that ethic, but to live that ethic, to experience that ethic. And at the same time, to engage the world's marketplace and its inhabitants with the kingdom and to preserve and unpolluted ministry by the complexities of finances. I could even talk a little bit this morning about how Adam and Eve were created to manage a garden. That work was actually part of God's flourishing dream for humanity. And, and work was not actually the effect of the fall and sin. But, but the effect of the fall and sin is that our work would be, would be of turmoil. Our work would be struggle. I could talk a little bit about this morning uh, uh, about about my conviction. You might think it's a little bit weird, but I actually have like an eschatological conviction that in the new heaven and the new earth for eternity, we're all going to have jobs. Because God created human beings with the fullness of his dream for human flourishing and God glorifying community, and he gave them a task. He gave them a job. And you might imagine, you might actually imagine eternity jobless. And what you might imagine eternity to be is human idleness, boredom, worklessness. And I'm telling you, that doesn't actually glorify God, but, the, but eternity is actually meant to glorify God. And I actually think we're all going to have jobs, but jobs that we love and jobs that glorify God and jobs that actually, that actually uh, expand 
human dominion and right relationships with one another, with him, and with the creation that he's given us to steward. I might be a plumber for eternity. I don't know. I don't know. He knows me. I'm trying to discover. I don't know. I don't know. What if it isn't just our carnal struggle, but what if it's actually our eternal joy to be able to say, all my life, been grinding all my life, sacrifice, hustle, pay the price. What if it's our eternal glory to grind? I could talk about my conviction that the future of the church in the West will rely heavily on bivocational missionaries who resist missionary silence. And therefore, the bivocational practitioners among us, who are the vast majority in the room. Yeah, that's right. Amen. The vast majority of the room are worthy of immense, immense, immense honor because they lead the way for the future of the church, I think. I could preach about how Jesus the carpenter meets leaders in their hard labor. But maybe another time. It's a sermon for another time. I could preach about the allure of wealth, which silences leaders and compromises their witness. I could preach about how lucrative the tent-making business was in the first century world and what kind of life Paul had at his fingertips at any moment if he would have chosen it. We could talk about how subversively powerful the material, individual, and consumer marketplace is that we live in. That if you don't actively defy those powers in your life primarily through radical generosity... You will be possessed by it. I could preach about how daydreaming about that Lexus that you want and scrolling through Zillow every day for the houses you wish you could live in is the first step on a trajectory toward missionary silence. I could tell you about the scores of incredible leaders that I've known in my personal life in the past whose spiritual authority has been beat to death by a hundred wants that became needs. I could talk about how the most dangerous threat to our material kingdom ethic might just be our children. Because suddenly the allure of wealth comes at you from an altruistic angle. It's not for you anymore. It's for them. And it becomes very hard and complicated to, to discern that. And I hope you're hearing that from a place of vulnerability. I struggle with that. We could joke all morning about how an Instagram account was created called Preachers and Sneakers, chronicling mega church pastor sneakers. You guys seen that yet, that Instagram? Whole Instagram account devoted to preacher, mega church pastors and their sneakers. And we could wonder together, we could wrestle together with whether or not the dirty feet of Christ Jesus would ever be found in $6,000 Air Yeezy 2s. Or $3,000 Jordan 1 retro highs. Or $4,000 custom designed Gucci boots. We could wrestle with what that actually does to spiritual authority. I could preach about how Jesus could have been rich but embraced poverty for us. That we might become rich in every meaningful way. How he called us to divest from the mastery of money. Not just the material of money, but its mastery. How he stood in solidarity at every turn with the poor and the hungry. But that's a sermon for another day. That's a sermon for another day. 
I could preach this morning about the threat of failure to convince us to quit and be silent as leaders. We could talk all morning about the painful crisis of identity and worth and value that happens when you aren't seeing any fruit as a missional leader. When no one comes to your events, when your community is falling apart, when you look back over your year in reflection and you, you struggle to identify a single piece of kingdom fruit. We could talk all morning about the strong temptation to quit, to shrink back, to fade out when you're struggling to get a ministry off the ground or when your ministry is stagnating after years of development and you simply don't know what to do. We could dialogue together about how the temptation to quit is really a desire to run away from our own doubts, a struggle to run away from our own shame and our own guilt and our own sense of inadequacy, which are all things that God actually wants to dive directly into with you. All of that entanglement, all of that struggle, all of those realities within you. He wants to deal with them. I could point out the poetic irony that all Paul needed to do to see a little fruit was to go next door. Walk out the door, five steps down the sidewalk, come up to the next door, knock, knock, knock. Salvation has come to this household. I could preach about how we always discover Jesus right next door to our expectations. I could, talk, I could preach about how the most spiritually hungry people are often in the shadow of the synagogue, not right inside of it. And those will both preach, but maybe another day. Maybe another day. I could preach this morning about the threat of conflict and betrayal to silencing the witness of the saints. We could talk about the tension of Jesus ushering in both reconciliation and peacemaking, but also a sword at the same time. And the struggle it is as missionaries and as leaders to see certain types of conflict as good and holy and okay. I could preach about the siren song of false peace. This song that sings to us all, drawing us into its vision for the world. And we don't realize that right at the front door of that world is missionary silence. We could explore how today's social media and political tribalism have coalesced to create a culture of contempt. And that culture of constantly calling out people, canceling people, deleting people based on a single tweet or a loosely held viewpoint has created a wisdom, a logic in our time for silence. We actually think we're starting to believe it's good to be silent. It's wise to be silent. There's an ethic for silence. But that, that false wisdom is actually veiled in a fear of conflict and what our speaking in this time might mean, what it might produce, what it might do. And it's, I, I want to say we're not just seeing conflict here in the life of Paul. We're not just seeing a, 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 a direct opposition and conflict. I actually think we're seeing betrayal. And I could talk about how this morning about how Paul loves and longs for the Jewish people so much that he goes city to city and goes to synagogues first. And a lot of times we talk about that as a missionary strategy. And I think maybe, maybe it was. But at the same time, there's, it's not long from here that Paul actually writes in Romans, I would forego my own salvation if my people would know Jesus. I actually think Paul's insistence on going straight to synagogues in every, every city is not a strategy. It's a love affair. I think he's desperate to see his people that he's labored with, led, learned with, walked with for years and years and years. I think he, he's desperate for them to know 
Christ Jesus. And this isn't just a mission field conflict for him. I think it's deep and painful betrayal from him. Every single city. City after city. From his own people. The people he's given his life to loving, serving, and leading for so long. I remember seeing, we could talk this morning about uh, the, the, the tweet I, I saw from, I think his name's Dan White, maybe uh, uh, three months ago, where he just, he's a pastor in the Northeast, and he just kind of made this tweet that said, I've been in ministry for two decades, and I can tell you the most painful part is the hundreds of people that I've bled with, and they've ghosted me. You know what ghosted is? You know what ghosted means? People who are just like out of nowhere. You have like one little argument, one little conflict or something like that. Or you just say one thing that they don't really like and they don't even talk to you about it. It's just peace. Don't answer. Don't talk. No interaction at all. And he just said, look, the, the, you, there, there's a whole lot of reasons to think that leadership in the kingdom of God, your microchurch leadership would be painful. But he's like, look, two decades in, I'm just telling you. I got wounds all over my body from hundreds of people I can identify that I married them, I counseled them, I walked with them, I came over at midnight, and they just ghosted me. That's betrayal. That's, that's called betrayal. And you experience that once or twice or three times or a dozen times, at some point you're going to start thinking, I'm not doing this anymore. It's not worth it. If this is what this is, it's not worth it. And it threatens that thing we're talking about, missionary silence. Silence. I could preach all morning about how Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And that every betrayal we experience actually invites us further into the complexity of cruciform pain. But maybe that's a sermon for another day. We can talk about that another time. I could preach about the threat of persecution and false accusation to silence our voice. I could talk this morning about how if the persecution most of the world experiences is a thunderstorm, then the persecution we experience in this country is but the morning dew. Whether or not people say Christmas or let us have our red cups or, you know, whatever. And listen, we, and, and then maybe we could explore together this morning the paradox of how the tiny, minimal, sometimes not real persecution that we face, we always pray for it to go away. And we pray for governmental leaders to come into office to take it away and to get rid of it. And yet the real catastrophic crisis level uh, persecution that, that churches and Christians face all over the country they actually don't pray for it to go away. They don't ask for it to cease. In the book Insanity of God, written by a, a guy who uses the pseudonym Nick Ripkin, who surveyed over 700 persecuted Christians around the world uh, uh, in, the, in the work leading up to his, writing his book, he wrote this, this line in Insanity of God, I have never encountered a mature believer living in persecution who asked us to pray that their persecution would cease. Instead, they, the focused prayer of the persecuted is that they would be faithful and obedient through their persecution and suffering. That they would not be silent. Because everybody understands that if I want this to go away, I know how to do it. I agree to be silent. I can make it go away right now if I agree to be silent. 
And so the prayer is not for it to go away because we know what it takes for that to be true, but that we would be faithful in the midst of it. I could preach about how the threat of physical harm and false accusation has been true of any leader in part, in, in part of any meaningful movement of the gospel in history. And to ask for a movement of God to break into this city is to simultaneously ask for persecution upon yourself and on us. I could preach about how Jesus saying something about crosses to bear and lives to lose but a resurrection and a kingdom hope to inherit. Maybe another day. Sermon for another time. I could preach about fear itself. Fear of all of it. Fear of loneliness. Fear of loss. Fear of persecution. Fear of betrayal. I could preach about how fear of any object, any person, or anything actually displaces our worship. Because what you fear, you will follow, and what you follow, you worship. And how fear is actually less about a threat made too big and more about a God made too small. And I could preach about the fear of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but that fear held in context to trust. Trusting in the love and sovereignty of the Father. Maybe another day. If the worship team would come up, I'll actually tell you my sermon. <laughs> Today, we take the idea of threat itself, pressure itself, in all of its forms. Loneliness, conflict, betrayal, the allure of wealth, stress of bivocational life, persecution, threat, accusation. Today we take the idea of threat in all of its forms and we admit together the reality that the devil will do the minimal amount of work to keep you silent. He will collaborate with the powers and principalities of this world to put pressure on the, the, the perseverance of the saints. On the, the, he will put pressure on missionary leaders, the priesthood of all believers, to make you silent. It's what he wants you to do. He wants to silence the advancement of the kingdom of God. And he will apply customized pressure. And I just want to dare you and I to ask the question, what is your minimum? What's my minimum right now? If you don't think you have a minimum, you're in trouble. If you can't admit that right now in your life you, you, have, a, you have a real like place that, that if it were scratched a little bit, you'd have an existential crisis as a missionary, as a follower of Jesus. What is the minimum level of persecution or trial or distraction or disruption that would take me out of ministry? That would keep me silent? It would buy my silence. I can tell you about six or seven minimums I've had in the past. And God brought me right into all seven of them. I mean, when I first became a Christian and, and, and I started thinking about being used by God in some way and realizing that if, if speaking, if speaking, if being an instrument of God's voice in the world would require I can't smoke weed anymore, I'll be silent. 
Just basic character issues. It ain't worth it. And having to deal with that for six months. And eventually thinking, no, it's, 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 worth, it's worth giving that up. And then immediately after, after dealing with God in that space, dealing with God in that minimum, immediately having to realize, gosh, if speaking, if being used by God would mean losing my friends, I will be silent. And realizing that the more I, 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 I talk about God or talk about Jesus or, or live out my faith among my friends who I held dear, they were starting to like leave me out of things and not want to not want to invite me to things and not talk to me as much and think I'm a little weird and say certain things right in front of me that weren't super cool. And I started realizing if that's what this means, I'll be silent. No way. And coming right up against another minimum and having to sit there and deal with God. And getting through that and then and then and then feeling a little bit more like Grace is sufficient for me. Christ is enough for me. It's okay. And then suddenly realizing if speaking, if speaking, if being an instrument of God means I have to actually forfeit my dreams and aspirations and the quality of life that I feel entitled to, I'll be silent. I'll be silent. I'm not giving that up. I'm not giving that up. And having to sit in that for nine months, junior year of college, wrestle with God. You come out of it and you think, greener pastures, I'm good. I'm never going to have to wrestle with something ever again. We're so right. And then pretty soon after, having to realize if, if being an instrument of God, if speaking for God, if, if, if being a witness of God would mean risk to my personal safety and my public reputation, I'll be silent. Not interested. If speaking opens me up to betrayal of the people that I've been like walking with and serving and loving, if it actually makes me vulnerable to betrayal, I'll be silent. No thanks. And each time having to wrestle with God in the moment, the experiential moment of my own minimum. Do you have the humility to be able to discern that question with God? I'm inviting you into a very brave question, a very hard question. God, do I have a minimum right now? Is there something in my life, a way that my life could be scratched or up, uh, some upheaval that could come to my life that would purchase my silence, my unfaithfulness? And the more important question I would pose to you is, do you have the courage to confess that answer to the people in your life? People need to know it. Your, 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 the, your coach needs to know it. Your microchurch leaders need to know it. Your community needs to know it so that we walk with one another in the, uh, the, the space of those minimums. And the good news is, I am convinced, not just by the word of this text, but through the experience of my own minimums over time, that God is right in the middle of your minimums. Waiting for you. Waiting to prove he's sufficient, he's enough. Waiting to speak a word over you. Waiting to strip unhealthy things from you. Wanting you to join him in it. 
so that every step of the way he can keep saying over and over again, every year, every six months, he can keep saying to you, do not be afraid, keep speaking. You know why? For I am with you. That's it. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. And that's enough. It's enough. It's more than enough. It surpasses enough. And if I'm inviting you to discern your minimum, I'll tell you mine right now. If speaking would mean the potential consistent experience of failure, I might be silent. Maybe it's because I'm a three. Almost everybody here knows that by now. I'm never sure if I'm achieving anything of real value. If I'm helping, if I'm moving things forward, if I'm being obedient, if I'm being faithful. And in that space of failure, I can't take it. I can't take it. And if I just have a consistent experience of not knowing if I'm achieving anything, I just want to quit. I just want to shut it down. And look, don't, don't come up to me afterward and say I'm doing a good job, please. <laughs> I'm going to leave right after this so I don't have awkward moments with people doing that. But I think God's trying to make me learn that He's enough. Even if I do fail, He's enough. And actually, it's, not, it's above my pay grade to decide what is success and failure. He does. And I'm having a hard time taking that word, but I'm in the middle of it. And all I can say is, I can look back at all the minimums he's passed me through. And maybe you can look back and you think about all the minimums he's brought you through. Even in the midst of the one you're in right now. And all I can say is, I know Jesus more today than I did ten years ago. And the gospel is better news for me today than it was ten years ago. And I'm more self-aware of my sin and weakness today than I was 10 years ago. And therefore, my understanding of God's grace is a whole lot bigger and better than it was 10 years ago. And my security in God's love, my roots in Him are just a little bit deeper today than they were 10 years ago. And so I take my minimum today, and the best I know how, I surrender it to God saying, This is where I'm at. And I trust you. Do something in me that I need you to do. And if it were up to me, I might quit. This is scary. But would your will be done in my life instead, not my will? I receive the cup you have for me. Help me to drink it. I can barely lift it to my own mouth. Would you help me drink it? So this morning as we come to the table, I want you to bring your minimum. I want you to be honest. Like dangerously honest. With yourself. And after this, I want you to be honest with your community about your minimum. And I don't want you to hide your minimum, minimum from God or act like it's not real, like you're so strong but to bring that weakness into the safe arms of Christ Jesus. 
And by the way, he already knows. You're not surprising him. You can bring that minimum, that space, that honesty and say, this is where I'm at right now. Would you speak a word to this? Would you deal with me in this? Would you let your will be done in me in this? As I remember what you have done and made possible and secured victory for me already in this space. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. So this morning, underground, I invite you to trust Christ Jesus with that vulnerability, that honesty, to bring it to him, to trust him, to bring yourself, surrender yourself to his loving care and to receive from him what he has. And if you're just in like deep processing, if you, if you, just, if you, need, if you feel like you need prayer ministry, you need somebody to like intercede with you about this. There's gonna be prayer ministry on the right and the left. If you wanna share openly, I encourage you to with who that person is. I just need you to pray for me in this right now. But if you just feel like, if you just wanna walk up to somebody and just say, could you just pray? I'm just struggling. That person, that person, whoever's up here can, will just trust that the Spirit of God knows how to pray on your behalf and they'll just intercede with you for a moment, support you for a moment. So this morning, underground family, the elements given for you.